0: Welcome to Loading Doc Talks, where all the juiciest conversations happen. I'm Chef Prithi Mystery. Every episode, I talk to my favorite food folks about their lives, food, and social justice. And we do a little shit-talking, too. I think that, for me, it was always really important to... Come to people where they're at and 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 you know, one of the things I would often talk to my front of the house staff about was like you don't have to be like super like tight and professional. But yeah, don't like sit down at the table and start drinking wine with people either. But like, you know, but find that place to just like, you're all adults having a conversation. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be this like I'm your servant uh, in order for it to be great service. You know, that's the other piece of service is how does the front of the house interact with the kitchen? And you know there can often be respect and disrespect on both sides and it never it never equates to a dining room that feels welcoming or joyful i think you can always tell when you go to a restaurant and you see that there's a warmth and an ease between the front and the back of the house and how they move around and interact with each other or the other, you know, the other front of the house employees, you know, you can always tell. I mean, I think that that type of environment and leadership always starts at the top because otherwise the culture creates itself. Like if you don't intentionally create a culture of support and warmth, then some other culture will happen. It's not like if you don't have an intentional, you know, drive around a certain type of culture that there'll just be no culture. It takes somebody like Vinny to be a general manager and say, this is the type of environment I am looking to create here and I'm going to be intentional about it. So to me, it's like people knowing that as a manager, I have their back. Letting them express themselves as their full selves. I think those are the types of things that allow a person to feel like when they walk up to that table that they feel empowered to be professional in in their own way. And that way is different for everyone. And, And I wanted that to be true. Like they should bring their personality to it. Like what I was saying before about the fine dining and this sort of like, oh my God, that was amazing service. But that person was like a robot. Like, I don't feel like there was a human connection there. I was treated like royalty and served. And I don't think that that is, that doesn't make for the most, like, amazing experience. I think that people like Vinny Eng, for example, our guest this week, really embrace this warmth of bringing their full selves to the job that kind of warmth and open-heartedness translates to a clientele and customers in a way that is much more profound in its experience. A lot of what I saw in Vinny's management and service style is sort of exactly the mantra that I often try to instill with some of my front of the house staff that were newer to the industry was this sort of sense of like grace and humor and playfulness, but still this mindfulness of being fully in control of what's happening on the floor that is not often found and is so, uh, you know, just such a, a wonderful trait in a person, and especially in a service industry role. My guest today is Vinny Ng. I first met Vinny when he was the general manager of Tartine Manufactory. He's a celebrated sommelier, but more recently a community activist as the director of policy and advocacy at Safer Together SF Bay Area. Tell me, Baby Vinny, where are you? What are the smells, the sights, the sounds? Baby Vinny
1: lived in Echo Park in Los Angeles. Were you born in Echo Park? I was born at Garfield Medical Center in Mm Ribsmeade, or San Gabriel. Mm -hmm. But born and raised in Echo Park, Los Angeles. That neighborhood has sort of taken on a very tumultuous, symbolic place in in Los Angeles right now. Yeah. The forces of displacement and gentrification. Most recently, sort of the use of law enforcement to displace homeless individuals living at Echo Park Lake.
0: What was it like when you were growing up, when you were five? like What, what were some of the things that you remember about the neighborhood?
1: The neighborhood was uh, rich in many different cultures of, of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Lots of Central American immigrants. Mm-hmm. I remember one friend that I played with, Fernando, was Guatemalan. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of also immigrant families from Mexico, but there was distinctly many different Central and South American immigrants in that neighborhood. Uh There was also a lot of violent crime. Or I should should walk that back. There was a lot of violence in the neighborhood.
0: And do you remember that as young as five years old, that that was something that you understood was happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, to the extent that someone that's five years old can understand feeling unsafe and Mm -hmm. being told by your parents that you shouldn't walk outside without an adult and Mm -hmm. holding hands with your mom and pointing at chalk outlines and little um, plastic placards that were evidence numbers. I mean, that was like the visual of that was a consistent presence in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Michael Park was Riddled with gun violence in the eighties, and we were we were taught that it was quote unquote gang violence.
0: I'm just curious, what was it like being a Cambodian immigrant family in a neighborhood that, as you've characterized, is predominantly Central American and Mexican American? Did you feel uh,
1: embraced? Did you feel um, different? There were there were certainly aspects of growing up where feeling othered was constant Mm -hmm. in retrospect my capacity to intellectualize that was very limited Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a large family so most of my time was spent with people that looked like me because they were my family (laughs) so what were you into like what were
0: the things you were curious about that you were interested in trying to paint a picture yeah, tell me, tell me some more. Tell me some more about young Vinny.
1: <laughs> loquats, loquats were mm. were delicious and easily grown in our backyard. Mm-hmm. There's an awesome avocado tree in our backyard. Mm. Played a lot of basketball with my brother, who's two years older than me. So yeah, a lot of horse, H O R S E, bike riding through the neighborhood. That was fun. Mm-hmm.
0: How far were you allowed to go? I mean, were there certain parameters of like your parents saying, OK, you can only stay within the certain, you know, blocks or what have you? Not so
1: much. It was less like how far I was limited, but like how exhausted I would get. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I mean, I'm just so it was really just about how how far you wanted to go, Yeah, you and Fernando. So did you feel free then? Because I'm just you know, you're telling me that like there was a lot of like, it's not safe to be out, but then when you're on your bike, you can really just kind of go. Was that
1: an outlet? I think, you know, the conversations around like, safety are constructed for Mm -hmm. a lot of us, even in our adult lives, right? Like, safety for a lot of folks is a feeling. Mm -hmm. So to your point, like as a kid, I felt mostly free enough to bike around in the neighborhood even though occasionally I would hear from my parents or from school officials about this violence or that unsafe thing. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, living in an echo park in the eighties was actually quite a nice experience. Like despite the stories around the violence, right? Cause often yeah. oftentimes I think when something violent happens, it's sensationalized Mm-hmm. And we, we try to construct a narrative around who's doing the violence, who's experiencing the violence, and who's to, to blame for the violence. Yeah. But as a kid growing up in the 80s in Echo Park, I felt really mostly at ease.
0: What was your favorite sport? Was there one that you sort of like latched onto a bit? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't
1: very athletic as a kid beyond playing sports with my brother outside. And also, like grew up in a family that valued intellectual development. They were like, mm. school's important. You have to learn. Academic mm-hmm. achievement was persistently a priority for my sisters and my mom. You know, they were like really adamant about my doing well on academic endeavors. Did you like that? Were you good at it? Were you like, or was it frustrating? Like- it was a container for my time. In hindsight, I think it, it felt like a chore, but I felt like mm-hmm. I wanted to be like that good kid. So I did my chores. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to please, so you, you had a desire to please your mom and your sisters. I think so. I think a lot of it's, and this is a feeling that I think is familiar for a lot of immigrant children. hmm The constant refrain from your parents of like, we sacrificed a lot for you to be here in America, so don't squander your, don't squander this opportunity, right? Yeah. So the foundational to feeding the model minority myth is that like, part of it is just this drive to push for assimilation of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. And so achievement is a form of assimilation and assimilation is a form of protection from Mm -hmm. perception of threat, like perception of being deported or perception of like being pushed out of this country. It's like a weird twisted desire there. Like you, you, you want to belong and your parents tell you that to belong, you have to achieve because like our place in America isn't guaranteed. Like, even though my parents were naturalized with permanent resident green cards, or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever that certification is, you know, they came as resident
0: alien card.
1: Well, that right. They came as I had one. (laughs) Yeah, they came as refugees, they got resident alien cards. And then there are a number of Mm -hmm. years that you have to live as a resident alien before you become a permanent resident. And then Mm -hmm. you have to take a citizenship test. And that takes time, right? Like, and in that window of time, looming over you is this fear that one mistake or one shortcoming is enough to be expelled. Mm -hmm. So the ways in which family separation like looms over immigrants in America is, it's like a low level terror.
0: Yeah, yeah, just that persistent feeling. Mm -hmm.
1: Is there some moment of sort of rebellion from that indoctrination? It literally took a geographic shift for me to have a different orientation, huh. I accepted an early admission offer to Duke University in North Carolina. Oh, well. And so, how old were you? I started college at 15. Oh,
0: my gosh. <laughs> Can I just say one thing? And that is, I think you're like the third guest, and we've only interviewed like maybe six or seven people (laughs) that has said that they went to college early
1: and, you know, 15, 16 years old. To be fair, I turned 16 the third week of school. So.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so then you're like literally 16 and you're in college.
1: 16 in the South. Right. Surrounded by. Like immersed in a world of class and whiteness. That campus is literally built on tobacco money, which is literally built on the labor of slaves. Yeah. So
0: immersed in whiteness, Vinny finds refuge in drama class. <laughs> Among drama kids. Yeah. Like yeah. theater
1: kids. We built sets and we made theater and we play acted and we, I mean, from the moment you get onto campus, it's like there's a lot of social climbing that happens. Mm. And it was just really odd to me and never something I had ever considered growing up as a kid. But, you know, I literally some, one of my freshman doormates was like, yeah, I'm literally here to get my MRS degree. And I'm like, what's MRS degree? And she's like, I'm here to find the husband.
0: <laughs> no, like literally there. And you were like, me too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: point i had not considered you know that i was going to college to find a partner you know i was like yeah at that point you know based on my upbringing i was like Mm -hmm. i was going to college to get an education not just an academic education but yeah it turns out like a lot of the life skills i have today are directly because i sort of went right into the cauldron of like just observing the last dynamic
0: did you recognize this at the time or is this more sort of in retrospect
1: i think there were elements of it that i recognized you know this was a time when being openly queer or gay was not even accepted Mm -hmm. among college students were you out in school amongst your friends amongst friends yeah yeah and it's always so surprising who in the aftermath like just like tracking friends who like didn't feel safe enough to come out, and they didn't even
0: say anything to you at the time. But did they reach out to you after?
1: I and mean, you knew, you know, the <laughs> wink. Like you just winked at me, right. Like you know, uh huh, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> you know, you just, you know. And again, this goes back to our early conversation about feeling safe. Yeah, and a lot of folks. In colleges across the country, even to this day, feeling safe as an other identity is constantly evolving because a lot of the spaces that we grow up in continue to be sort of heteronormative, mm-hmm. white-centric.
0: I mean, I totally hear you. I, I I ended up at Bowling Green State University for reasons I don't need to go into. I, I lasted one and a half semesters, and I dropped out. Right, and you, yeah, I wasn't out to my uh, roommate. Like my roommate, literally on the phone with me. I said I was telling her about all my classes, and I was taking like philosophy of feminism and all this shit. And she actually paused and said, "You're not a lesbian or anything, are you?" And I, I was 17 years old. I was just like, "No," um, like I didn't. I, I mean, I had a girlfriend, but I just didn't know what to say when you're so young and and fear of feeling unsafe. So I can totally relate to
1: what you're talking about in the time period of the late 90s. Well, and I think this is like a reflection, too, of like the pressure to assimilate, Mm -hmm. the pressure to align to what is centered. And this is why the notion of centering is so important. If we keep shifting our center relative to white supremacy, we're never going to get far. Yeah. Right? So if we keep moderating our positions around social, racial and gender equity against the sort of white heteronormative standard, we're not going to get very far.
0: In the second segment, I talk more about how Vinny went from being a young busser to one of the most beloved dining room personalities in San Francisco. I'm curious about how you ended up in San Francisco.
1: In 2003, uh, Mm -hmm. I graduated at the height of a lovely thing called a recession. And I decided I wanted to be back in California and Came to San Francisco to do an internship at a performing arts organization.
0: So you're working at a performing arts organization and then you're working in restaurants at night. So what was the first place you worked? Bar Tartine.
1: Hmm. Under Jason Fox. And then under Chris Croner. And then under Nick Bala and Courtney Burns. So you stayed there.
0: I stayed. I, I, you didn't bounce around to other...
1: No, I started as a busser and worked my way up to becoming a general manager and wine director and left the arts industry completely because I was like full-time employed in the restaurant industry.
0: You have this sort of magnetic personality energy that really... Uh, is attractive to so many people and um and and you know i think we both know that service in some ways is often like a performance what did you feel as you were sort of coming up the ranks and finding yourself in a management position like i know that that's the vibe that you give off were you also feeling like hey this is like comes pretty
1: naturally to me And I enjoy it. Actually, one of my former general managers would tell you that I was terrible. (laughs) I had terrible, I was terrible table (laughs) side because I was, I was terrified of like talking to strangers, like starting out completely terrified. What was the fear? Interrupting people, you know, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you know, once, Mm -hmm. once it became clear that Mm -hmm. this is about guiding people into agency and making choices that brought them comfort and pleasure and joy. I was like, oh, I get it now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of my approach to service is about agency and helping others discover and understand their agency. And what I mean by that is like making a choice that not only benefits you, but is mutually beneficial to everyone involved. What does that look like? Well, Well, I think in hospitality, it's really hard, right? Because Your line cooks are under a lot of pressure. Your servers are under a lot of pressure. And there's certainly a school of hospitality that's like the customer is always right. And it's like, actually, Mm -hmm. your staff is always right. The guests coming in are here to have an experience for sure. And that they should receive an experience commensurate with what you're asking them to pay. But there are like community agreements Mm -hmm. when you walk into a space.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I feel. Do you feel like there's when you were saying earlier that you were initially terrified? I have two questions for you. One is uh, one of the things I think, as especially as BIPOC folks, like you know, the majority of diners, especially in a city like San Francisco, in a nicer restaurant, are white people. What I have often seen as a chef, a lot of my white servers felt a lot more comfortable walking up to tables. I'm just curious, was that part of it just being encultured? Not like you're like, I'm afraid of white people, but like you're all of a sudden in this role where you're walking up to their table and I feel like there's a lot more people who are used to being in environments that are all white folks um, and they themselves are, that they feel more comfortable in that role and it takes BIPOC folks or even, you know, being queer. um, I remember a few like queer white servers that were just like a little bit more anxiety filled at first. And I really needed to like coach them, which is funny because I've never been a server, Um, but it's about relating to people, right? It's not, I'm not going to tell teach them how to take orders and what have you Um, carry a tray. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, just talking to people about how they, their style of communication and how they relate to other people and stuff like that. Do you feel like that was part of your fear. And then also, I'm curious, how did it feel
1: when you sort of, you know, unlocked that fear? You know, it's interesting that you would frame it that way. I think that the, the fear for me was just like, I, I'm, I'm actually quite an introvert. <laughs> I was terrified mm-hmm. of like, disappointing my guest. For me, the experience really shifted when I was like, they stepped in here. With complete faith that like they're going to receive an experience that's meaningful right and that i'm i'm driving that mm-hmm. so that's what unlocked it for me you know i think these aspects though very much of like the, the servitude of a lot of hospitality jobs and and restaurant settings is is a real legitimate sort of oppressive energy for yeah. A lot of workplaces. And I think post-COVID, the post-COVID landscape has accelerated, I think, the evolving expectation of what experienced diners want from a, a restaurant setting.
0: And where do you think the evolution has gone?
1: A lot of people don't want an extended multiple-hour seated experience.
0: What do you think about COVID
1: has changed that? I think COVID like emptied out our dining rooms and there are a lot of people that are yeah. not going to flock back in anytime soon. And like pivoting a business doesn't happen overnight. So like for a lot of restaurant businesses mm-hmm. that pivoted to take out only or outdoor dining, setting up different systems and redesigning your schedule and your dining room and your, and training your employees like that, that all takes time. Yeah. It takes a lot. And then when everyone's doing it all at once, the fallacy isn't that there's a worker shortage. The fallacy is that Mm -hmm. I think people who haven't been displaced from the hospitality industry can be more selective about what jobs they take. So you can be a lot more discerning. And COVID has really taught everyone to really center their feelings of safety, right? Like, again, it's interesting that our conversation keeps reverting back to this idea of feeling safe. Mm -hmm. That, you know, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about during COVID is that like, we're having the wrong conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion when a lot of folks think that it's a hire, like you're hiring someone that looks like someone that doesn't exist in your organization when in fact mm-hmm. the conversation needs to be expanded to ensure that the workplace and the community where the workers are working in are safe for everyone regardless of what position you're in
0: do you feel like there's more because of covid do you feel like there's more opportunity for more people to pay attention and listen to these types of conversations than
1: before, I think the last year, frankly, mm-hmm. you, there were there were a wave, and there continues to be episodic sort of like verbal and written expressions of solidarity by brands, by mm-hmm. industry leaders, mm-hmm. but all of that's just noise if it doesn't translate into safer workplaces and safer communities for black and brown communities that continue to be over and continue to be exposed to unnecessary racialized violence, whether it's state sanctioned violence or mm-hmm. state supported animus between racial groups.
0: Yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying, I think, uh, There's a term that's been going around a lot in the last year or so, but probably in the past as well, is performative allyship. I wanted to ask you, because we talked the other day about whether it's, you know, talking about Palestine or talking about Black Lives Matter and violence towards AAPI community. There's been a shift where restaurateurs and chefs have kind of been schooled if you will in the last year or or have like started to realize that they actually need to be a part of the change and not just throw their hands up and go oh that's terrible for those people but at the same time there's this idea that they feel like those two things are mutually exclusive that you either need to be this hospitality superstar where all of your customers feel like they're VIP rock stars and they're just loved up on um, and have this amazing experience. Or you can take a stand and actually try to do something about all of these issues that plague our communities and make it unsafe for so many people. And I think that's something that you, I feel like I've tried as well to some success. And I feel like this is something that you have really always understood. And I'm curious to hear from you in in the sense, basically speak to those people. Let's be clear. The first time when I did my tartine dinner (laughs) and you were still the general manager, every single person I talked to was like, oh, my God, I love Vinny. Oh, my God, I love Vinny. So as far as your hospitality skills, you definitely have this magnetic presence where everyone seems to love you, the customers love you, you really bring something to that experience, but yet you've been able to be very clear about your stance on a lot of these issues. So I'm curious for you how that manifests and how you're able to hold both of those things that many people in this industry feel are
1: mutually exclusive. Well, you're very generous. Um, I, I would say that it's not a binary like we don't live in, I mean, we live in a gender binary world. When the reality is, like, well, you know, don't. The, let me <laughs> let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. I do personally. The, the <laughs> predominant orientation mm-hmm. is a binary world, right? Like male, mm-hmm. female, good, bad, gay, straight. But the reality is, right. we live on a spectrum. Right, And all of our daily interactions are on a spectrum. And when we realize that there's continuity across our community Mm -hmm. and we celebrate the variances for their very existence, that orientation allows you to be open to better interactions and better outcomes and better listening, like just and a better awareness about what people are, are available for. Like, for me, hospitality is like identifying available opportunities for engagement, interaction, and shared joy. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to move away from imposing a binary, especially with regards to like, you know, with the more uncomfortable topics around police violence and white supremacy and Mm -hmm. Palestine, that everyone comes to those very uncomfortable realities with various degrees of lived experience related to that. But what we can and all hold is knowing when we feel safe. You know, I'm of the philosophy that like, extending as much agency as possible to your workers will translate into extending mm-hmm. hospitality to your guests. But definitely I'm also of the mindset and this is learned after many failures that like boundaries are important, right? So like speaking up in protest of police violence is a boundary. Speaking up against state sanctioned violence is a boundary that says like my boundary is i would prefer for government dollars not be spent on violence whether domestic or abroad right this comes from like having grown up unraveling the layers of trauma that i inherited mm-hmm. as the son of refugees who came from cambodia and were displaced from their homeland because of the Khmer Rouge genocide and years of labor camps. Right. That were created as a result of a power vacuum because Henry Kissinger decided that he wanted to have a little imperialistic experiment in Southeast Asia. So, you know, I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes our lives are lived at the individual scale But we often also need to reflect on the systemic and structural scale so that we can become better people and become better at living in community with others, especially the ones we disagree with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like what I hear you saying that that touches me is really, it's not about whether someone's been offended or not. It's really about... The safety, this, do you, do you feel safe as a customer, as an employee, as a community member? Do you feel safe to be your full self? And I think that when you take it to that level, it takes it away like, well, I agree or disagree with your perspective because it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's on that individual level and
1: then on a community level. We can live in our variations without othering someone to the point mm-hmm. that they feel diminished. That yeah. like, basic human decency is supported when we advance the dignity of others, especially when we invest in advancing the dignity of communities that have been long uh, neglected due to systemic racism, due to misogyny, mm-hmm. due to homophobia, due to state-sanctioned violence, due to mass incarceration. The thread through all of this is that, like, Mm -hmm. you and I, regardless of our political positions, have a basic human right to, like, live. Mm -hmm. And that when we see suffering and when we see unnecessary violence, that we name it and check in with folks to say, like, what do you need to feel safe?
0: Yeah. We need to move on in a second to our last segment because it's almost one o'clock, but it's a quick segment. But I I just wanted to say to me, it, it seems like what I what I also hear you saying and I feel it and see it in myself is that like what COVID has also illuminated to more people is the need and desire to care for everyone's health and safety. In every job or role, you know, when we when when we're able to I'm able to be, you know, in my house and not leave for, you know, a week or two aside from going for a walk in the neighborhood and someone else is being told they have to show up at a slaughterhouse with not proper safety measures in place. And that's just the the lot that they're given. Well,
1: or that like what may be inconvenient for you could be deadly for someone else. Right. And. The things that make our communities sick—mass incarceration, police violence, racism—that mm-hmm. they, they, they may not touch you now, but they'll eventually touch you in one way or another. Oh, yeah. And so we really have to invest in a different approach to supporting community wellness, and when we do, it advances. Everyone's health.
0: So our last segment is uh, is pretty much a, a little fun segment where I ask you a, a few fun questions. All right, here we go. Are you ready? First question: What are your go-to hot dog
1: toppings? Relish, grilled onions, mm-hmm. mm. ketchup. Oh wow. And mustard.
0: Wow. You're brave enough to say on this podcast that you put Ketchup on your hot dog. I'm impressed.
1: I'm brave enough to say that I eat, I eat hot dog. <laughs> Listen, when you grew what? up in, when you grew up in Los Angeles, like a Dodger dog uh-huh. a Dodger dog is like a coveted food experience.
0: I have had many uh, Coliseum dog.
1: But that's not the same as the Dodger dog.
0: You know, I, what I do know is that the
1: Dodger fans often choose violence. And so I'm just going to move on right now. How did I even identify as a Dodger fan? <laughs> I just said that I've eaten Dodger dogs.
0: I don't know. That's, you, you're going in hard on the Dodger dogs. So <laughs> what was your first sort of wow food epiphany
1: memory? The fine epiphany.
0: Like so, when you're you're a kid and you're like, you know, you eat whatever at home or at school and then you have something somewhere where you're like, wow, this just like really kind of blew my mind in some way.
1: I mean, I had those almost every day growing up in L.A. L.A. has such an incredible wealth of immigrant food. Yeah. Share one with me. Nam no. Grilled Vietnamese pork meatballs. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Where did you have that? Oh, all over. I mean, literally little mamas would make them in their homes and then like you could pick up catering trays from people's homes. That sounds so good. Yeah. Are you giving me
0: more than one? What's the next one? (laughs) Keep going.
1: (laughs) And jook. Just like the most perfect rice porridge. And that is something that
0: your family would make?
1: My mom makes incredible jook. With the most incredible topping. What are your favorite toppings? Well, there's the preserved egg. That's delicious. Mm-hmm. There's also what they call pork floss. Oh, yes. Dried pork. I've seen like it. Like shredded and dried. Maggie seasoning. Maggie? Maggie is like next level. Yeah. Soy sauce doesn't compare.
0: No, no. Maggie is definitely next level. Yeah. So. So those are the main things. No, I remember pork floss because, uh. I was in Hong Kong a number of years ago and in a market and I was like waiting to be rung up and I saw the can of it and never having heard of pork floss before, I just thought that was the most <laughs> amazing and kind of <laughs> thing. So I had taken a picture of it. I was like, pork floss? Like what is that? But now I've gotten to know more about pork floss. Let's let's stick with food for a second and you're bragging about all of the diverse deliciousness of Los Angeles. What is your favorite taco filling or style?
1: Lately? Al Pastor.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Where do you get your Al Pastor? King Tacos in LA. And do they have the vertical spit and everything?
1: I don't know. I I usually just order them. I don't actually examine the kitchen.
0: said like a classic front of the house That's <laughs> It's true. Just, I'm labeling you. I'm putting you in a box, whether you want to be or not. A- Al Pastor is also uh definitely my, uh it's up there. It's pretty much number one uh, favorite taco. Have you been to Mexico City? No. Are you inviting
1: me? Oh, my God.
0: Let's go to Mexico City and hang out with Sakab and Norma and eat Al Pastor tacos. Yeah. There are so many delicious places. I'd love to see places. Norma.
1: That would be amazing. It's been such a long time.
0: I've been like... <laughs> four times or four or five times. I love it there. Polonizer.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to like wrap my head around that for a minute. Okay. I'll take it.
1: <laughs> I, I said that in jest. I didn't, I, you know, I think there's a thoughtful way to appreciate and explore other cultures and regions.
0: I do remember the first time I I went and I was like, Ann and I were just like, this was uh, 10 years ago. And um, it was my 35th birthday. And we were like, wow, how is there this amazing, beautiful city with so many beautiful parks and museums and art and delicious food? And it's like closer to San Francisco than New York. Okay, let's move on here. Pet history. Species, names,
1: years. My first dog was a Dachshund named Lucky. He died mm-hmm. of cancer. Aww. I once had a goldfish that died, so I flushed it down the toilet. That's a thing. And then my dad got another dog, a Doberman named Axel. Mm-hmm. And then, um, mm-hmm. then I left the house for college. And during COVID... I became foster daddy to an orange tabby named Trouble, the most adorable little cat, except at three in the morning when he meows and I sleep through it and he wakes my roommate up.
0: <laughs> I have a similar situation because Peppercorn literally, starting around three or four in the morning, starts harassing Anne like nobody's business. Between like Why Anne? You know, here's the deal. She's a morning person, and so she always feeds peppercorn her breakfast. So that's how it kind of started. For some reason now, it's just gone into just general harassment. Um, I don't know if it's just like, hey, I, I'm awake, and I just want to play and whatever, but she like poke, she's <laughs> knocks things off her dresser. So now there's nothing on Anne's dresser. She has to put her glasses in a drawer because otherwise she'll knock her glasses off. So my cat also harasses my roommate. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I sleep through. I sleep through most of it.
0: I know you probably have to go. I'll just ask you one more question. What has been a like emergency fallback pandemic? You know, you're in lockdown. What what have you meal that you have concocted for yourself?
1: Um, ordering in. <laughs> 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 About six six months into, I think everyone got tired of cooking. I just. A good old mission burrito i love it
0: well i know you need to go i need to go we could talk forever but that's just because you know you're kind of my friend and stuff (laughs) thank you so much thank you Thanks to Vinny. I'll link to him and his work in the show notes. Thanks for listening, all of you wonderful listeners. You can follow Loading Doc Talks in your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave a review and share it with a friend. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chef P Mystery. And a big shout out to our podcast and music production team, Copper and Heat.